0: of our heart is a reality that we need to face and acknowledge we're going to see three things this morning we're going to see the condemnation that we face in our hearts secondly we're going to see the confidence that we discover in christ and thirdly we're going to see the communion that we can enjoy in prayer i'm going to close by just saying some um, just some reflections on prayer and the encouragement that we have to come before god in prayer. 1 John chapter 3 verse 19 says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. We belong to the truth and we know that we belong to, to the truth. This is a dangerous combination in our world. What the Apostle John is speaking about here are Two things that are in some ways quite foreign in our world, both certainty and truth. The world is wary of certainty and skeptical of claims and truth, of truth. And so we exist in that world which sends us this message, and so we exist in a world which questions everything. How can we be certain about anything is the reality of our modern world? But here's a quote that I think sums up our modern world. Truth is so obscure these days and lies so well established that unless we love the truth we shall never recognise it. I think that sums up our scepticism the scepticism of our modern world. But that quote was by a man called Blaise Pascal, who lived in the sixteen fifties. So even hundreds of years ago people had a a scepticism around truth. And what we're going to see here this morning is that there's a truth that we 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 need to just we we need to know more than truth. We need to love truth because our knowledge of God is not merely our understanding of some facts about God. I'm going to see this morning that our knowledge of God is about our love for the truth of God. And that's really the whole reason why John is writing this letter. The whole purpose of this letter, if you flick over to the last chapter there in chapter 5, verse 13, John tells us why he's writing this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. See the reason that John is writing? It's So these believers might have a confidence in the midst of their sceptical world. Last week we saw from the previous section, if you glance back to chapter 3, verses 18 to 30, we saw that our love for our brothers is the evidence of of a spiritual life. And sacrifice is evidence of love. We saw that it's not just sufficient last week to know, but we need to show and demonstrate our love. And that's, that's just a problem, isn't it? That we know that loving one another is so crucial and so part of, so close to the Christian life. And we've already confessed this morning that we've in fact failed to do that. And what's worse is that if we feel that we're the only people who feel that way. We've seen in this letter that there are this group of people that have come not from the outside, but are, have come from the inside of this early church that John writes to. And these false teachers have begun this internal campaign to destabilise these Christians that John is writing to. Back in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 26 we read that there's this group of people who are in the church and they're seeking to deceive and undermine the confidence of those believers. See, to to deceive is to steal from these believers because it would seem that these false teachers who have come into the church have been thieves of the confidence that these early believers had. My hunch is that um, probably these false teachers had a confidence. They had the confidence, but they had the confidence in themselves. Possibly because they thought that they were the sinless ones and everyone else thought that they were just the miserable sinners. And so here are these believers who don't back themselves in this way they're not caught up in that delusion and that deception and they're worried they're undermined they're not sure if they're Christians anymore there's this restlessness in their hearts and this is what John addresses in our passage have a look there in verse 19 this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set set our hearts at rest in his presence See, the problem here is one of a restless heart, a condemning heart, a heart that's full of guilt and full of accusation. Because loving brothers, as we've seen last week, is is, is this vital consequence, a result of being loved by God. And so the very next thing that you might think of is, okay, I understand that loving my brothers is so important, but how have I gone at that? Do I love like Jesus loves? How do I go at reaching his standard? And so what happens for most believers is there's a degree of doubt that creeps into our hearts and sometimes it leads to despair and this this doubt, this restlessness of our heart is most acute in his presence. As we come to God, as we come to God knowing that we haven't loved our brothers as ourselves, there's this condemnation that we feel. And the reality is, as Christian people, we need to deal with that. We need to acknowledge that this is often how we feel and we need to work out how we deal with the restlessness of our own heart. And I believe this is probably one of the most significant reasons why prayer is so Hard. It's it's almost troubling to know the reality of who we are and yet to draw near to God in prayer. So, why do our hearts condemn us? Well, our hearts condemn us because that's what it is to approach a Holy God. We just sang in our first song of the holiness of God and we see throughout the scriptures that when people enter the presence of God, when they get a sense of just of his holiness, we see, for example, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, as he encounters the holiness of God, he falls prostrate down on his face, knowing he's not worthy to be before God. Once my um, my mother-in-law borrowed one of these um, makeup mirrors. I don't know if you've seen one of these makeup mirrors, and it's a special type of makeup mirror because what it does is it's kind of got some X-ray or uh, infrared kind of technology associated with it. Is it doesn't just um, you know show your reflection, but it shows what's beneath your skin. It shows all the blemishes, even the ones that you can't see. It can see. And so it's a great, I mean, it's, it, beauticians use them all the time because they put you, you know, in front of one of these uh, uh, you know, mirrors with all these x-rays, infrared things, and it shows you how terribly ugly you are and uh, you know, this amazing makeup that can make you feel beautiful. And that's the reality, isn't it, for us as Christians? When we get a sense of the holiness of God, of the light of who he is, the darkness of who we are becomes apparent. And the closer we get to God, the closer we get to God and his holiness, his purity, the more, if you like, the more traumatic it is. As we are faced with who we are, and we are faced with his holiness, our heart condemns us. Our heart often says to us as we... Imagine ourselves to pray. You call yourself a Christian. Why aren't you loving your neighbour as yourself? What if people around you really knew who you are? These are the kinds of questions. These kinds of this is kind of restlessness that enters our heart. This is the condemnation that we face. This is the reality of the Christian life. And this is what John really wants to help Christians understand. Because you notice there in verse 9 to 19, it says a wonderful thing. That al- although there is this <clears throat> reality of restlessness, there is something more than simply restlessness. There's a promise here of our hearts being at rest this is how we set our hearts of at rest see what John's saying there is there's a, there's a way that there's a way forward where we can know who God is in his purity and his holiness where we can be real with who we are and yet our hearts can be at rest see our hearts condemn us so often because we forget the reality of the gospel. We forget the reality of what Jesus has done for us. If you flick back to 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, you'll see there, and this is a, a, a section of scriptures often in our prayer book used with a prayer of confession. It says, "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness." And we're told there, in, over in chapter 2 verse 1, dear children, I write to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone sins, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's the reality. There's nothing, if you've been a Christian for a little while, there's nothing new for you in those sentences. The reality is that in the gospel, There is forgiveness, and it's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus forgives people, that Jesus forgives sin, that we have an advocate. And yet here's the reality, I think, that's in our hearts so often, that we know that Jesus has forgiven us, but we find it very difficult to forgive ourselves. People often say that. People often say, I know that God forgives me, but somehow I can't forgive myself. I think what John would say is that that is a problem of the heart. I think he'd also say that that's a problem of the heart that every Christian has. Um, One writer a couple of uh, hundred years ago spoke about it like there's this internal court. He says, when conscience summons us to the tribunal Within, it declares us guilty. The evidence of our union with Christ is obscured by the consciousness of inconsistencies which, regarded in themselves, compel us to question whether we are of the truth or are deceived. See what he's saying is that Christians have within us this internal court and it's not one of an advocate... It's one for which we're accused. And when we accuse ourselves, we find ourselves guilty every single time. And so this is what John is getting under. This is the reality of a restless heart. This is the condemnation that we face. But John wants to help us with this by showing us, secondly, the confidence that we can discover. And that confidence there is in verse 20. Have a look there at the start of verse 20. For God is greater than our hearts. There is this internal court that operates, that declares us guilty, but God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. If there's only one thing that you remember today, I think it would be best to be verse 20. God is greater than our hearts. Because if we understand the gospel, if we understand the gospel that if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness, we'll know that reality. But so often we don't. So often we don't. Our heart summons us to this tribunal within and it declares us guilty. And it's so hard to to rid ourselves of a condemning heart. Because what happens when our heart condemns us? When we know in one sense intellectually the truths of the gospel, but in our hearts we only know the condemnation that they bring. What happens I think is that we elevate something in our hearts. See, if we see God as greater than our heart. If we treat God as greater than our heart, we'll know the word of the gospel that says to us there's forgiveness. But that's not what we do. Often what we do is we place other truths above what God declares to us in the gospel. And so in that we treat Whatever we place above God, as a God. See, if we can't forgive ourselves, it's often because there's something else in our life that's more important to us than God. often the reason that we struggle to forgive ourselves is that we value so much what others think. We value... Their opinion. And if they were to know of what we had done, they would never forgive us. And so we're left in guilt and condemnation. And we know that others would do it to us because you know what? We do it to them. But God is the only one who forgives. The opinion of others... Sometimes there's little forgiveness in the opinion of others. Apostle Paul knew this. He said, it is God who saves, who is to condemn. You see, so often we condemn ourselves because we place the reality of what we think about ourselves above what God has declared to us in the gospel. We promote, we elevate what we think above what he says. And so we're left helpless, wallowing in guilt and self pity because we fail to realise that Christ is our advocate. There's this story that's told, it's probably not true, during the time of the Russian Tsar. There was a good friend of the Russian Tsar and he knew that he was dying, he had a son, and so he said to the Tsar, Look, Would you adopt my son? Eventually the father died. The son was adopted into the family of the Tsar. As he grew up, this adopted son was given a commission in the army. But along with the army went the drinking. And along with the drinking went the gambling. And then along with the gambling went the embezzlement of the Tsar's funds. Well, this is a trajectory that's hard to stop. Once you start, things got too much. They, this, this adopted son felt like things were to become public. He got the books out one night, seeing if he could fiddle them just to make things right. And there as he saw the reality of what he had done in black and white, there was no way out, he continued to drink. He took his revolver out, not having the fortitude necessary to take his life, he kept drinking and drinking and fell asleep. Stories story is said that the Tsar comes in. He comes into the room and sees all the papers that declare this man's guilt from his embezzlement. He sees the revolver there on the table and he writes him a note. And on the note it says... I, the Tsar, will make the debts good. Sorry, I will make good the debts in this book. See, that young man woke up to realise that that adopted father had loved him, and in fact, had loved him even though he knew everything about him. See, this is, I think, one of the realities of growing as a Christian. As we come to know the reality of who God is, one of the things that occurs for us is we, we do become aware of our sin. And In fact, um, Thomas Cranmer, the man who wrote the Anglican Prayer Book, said that the more you grow as a Christian, it's not that you confess your sin less as you grow in maturity, it's in fact that you confess your sin more because you realise the kind of sin that was at one time hidden from you. You couldn't see it. And so we need to be prepared for this. We need to be prepared for the reality that we're going to discover our sin and face what we so so often haven't faced, a kind of selfishness, that surprises us, deeds that ca- catch us off guard. And so even if we're having trouble forgiving ourselves now, what, is, what, what if we grow as Christians and there's those things in our lives that we didn't even know of, the kind of stuff we haven't even seen? See, this is one of the realities of the gospel that we need to realise that God knows everything about us. He knows who we are. He knows who we are more than we know who we are, and yet he forgives us. He's looked into our heart, and he's seen everything, and he's left that note upon us, that note of the gospel This is a wonderful truth for us to confess as Christians because too often we are like those kids hiding in a closet. The Apostle Peter was like that, wasn't he? When faced with his sin, he denied it. And so at the end of John's Gospel, John confronts Peter and three times he... He asks Peter if he loves him. And on the third time, he says in John chapter 21, verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, in that moment, As Peter was confronted with his sin, he couldn't explain his actions. He couldn't express his sorrow. What does he do when he's faced reality of who he is? He kind of just gives up before Jesus because before God we can't hide a thing. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that God knows us. He knows every part of us, and yet he still loves us. We're trained in our world to put on the kind of front, the kind of acceptable front that is acceptable to others. And so we hide ourselves. We hide ourselves because we know that if people really did know us, they probably wouldn't love us. And so we have the privilege of Christian people coming before God, coming before him, knowing who we are, knowing that he knows who we are, and yet he loves us the same. This is why I want to close just with a word on prayer, the communion that we enjoy. We see here that the Apostle John encourages us to come before God in prayer. And often when we think of prayer, prayer is this kind of information exchange. Um, you know, people pray when they're in trouble. But real prayer is the very thing that John is talking about here. In verse 19, It's verse 20, it's coming in to the presence of God. The presence of God and seeking a personal audience with him. Often prayer is... I think in our minds, reduced to something like sending an email. Uh, You know, when you send an email, you're not sure if someone's received it or not. The good thing about an email is that you don't have to have that personal interaction. It's just some words that's sent. It's just some delivery. It's a delivery of information. And so often that's what we reduce prayer to. But here, we're reminded that prayer is to come before the presence of God, to have a personal audience with him. And so prayer means that we give our full attention to God because he gives his full attention to us. You see, we might know that God loves us. We might know about his power. We might know about his sovereignty. But when we come before him in prayer... That's when we start to deepen that reality of that knowledge, when those facts of who God is are turned into truths that we cling to. The psalmist um, says, I set the Lord ever before me, therefore I am not shaken. He, He goes on to say, I will net, He goes on to say that God will never leave him and forsake him. See, as this psalmist is praying, he's praying knowing two truths. He's knowing in this particular psalm that his enemy is around him. That's a truth that's right before him. But his prayer is a declaration in the presence of God of his safety. And so what he's feeling at the moment is the very real presence of his enemy. But what he's declaring in prayer is the truths of what God has shown him about himself. And that's why uh, we see there in 1 John chapter three, that in, there in verse 22, that there's a confidence that we have in prayer. There's a confidence, as we pray according to God's promise and according to His pleasure. And so prayer is not just simply the sending up of information. Prayer is our privilege of having an audience with God, seeking his presence and seeking him in his presence and allowing the truths about what he says about himself to overshadow our reality of what we feel. And so we have great encouragement to pray Because real prayer is not just laying our requests before God. Real prayer is laying our whole life before him. Paul speaks of a wrestling in prayer. I think this is what we do. We wrestle in prayer. We wrestle with so often what we feel of our inadequacy as human people. But we wrestle against that inadequacy with the truths of what God declares to us in the gospel. And those prayers, as we see in verses 22 and 23, those prayers are powerful. Those are the prayers that God answers. And those are the prayers that God honours. So let us pray. We thank you, O Heavenly Father, that you know the reality of who we are. We thank you, Father, that in the gospel there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would allow us to come before you in confidence, knowing that the Lord Jesus has gone before us, knowing that he is our advocate, knowing that he has forgiven all our sin. And we pray, Father, that this would give us a boldness, to pray according to your promises, And in a way that pleases you. For your glory we pray. Amen. Please stand.